You're listening to Joy Coaching America with the Joy Coach, Karen Lynn Grant, spreading upbeat, uplifting, informative messages of hope and happiness from sea to shining sea from our home in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Welcome to Joy Coaching America with Carolyn Grant, and we are here with another special episode, and this one celebrating Father's Day with a focus on four founding fathers, delivered to us by Pamela Romney Openshaw. And today, as we focus on these founding fathers, these four specific founding fathers, we want to bring to light the beautiful mission, calling, and purpose that each one had and the role that each one played in the development of this great nation. And so, Pamela, I just want to turn the time over to you and you can announce our first founding father. Thank you very much. I've uh, decided that the, the best thing to talk about today would be to tell you about the two Two of the founding fathers who were in, involved in initiating the movement to become independent in the United States of America. Um, and those two are Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry. But before I talk about them, let's just talk about the founders in general. These were phenomenal men that brought about the formation of America. Yes, Karen pointed out that each one of them had his individual gifts to bring into the process. These were mortal men. They were not perfect men. They made mistakes. Um, There are things that we can look at in their lives and we could say, well, it would have been better if thus and so had not been the case. But they were men operating within their cultures and doing the very best that they knew how to do. And as I've researched their lives and read so many things about them, Um, what I have found is that they had a commitment to do what was best in the creation of a good system of government in the United States. People today say, well, they were rich white men uh, who were working only for their own betterment and for what would bring about their own best economic interests. Well, that's a very shallow and very short-sighted estimation of things. It's true that the men who brought this about were white, and they were also either rich or well-to-do, but those were the only men who had the time and the effort to dedicate to this. For instance, the Constitutional Convention took four months. You would have to have been a wealthy individual with someone who could run your interests back home in order for you to take four months to go sit in a a stuffy... um, hall in Philadelphia with the windows closed, even though it was blazing heat in the room, mm-hmm. in order to be able to draft a system of government that would work for America. These these men were really trying to bring about what was best. They had that as, a, as this gut-level goal inside of themselves. And it's been a powerful thing to read about them and to study their lives. Um, also, the argument is made that they were white men. Well, those were the men who were running the culture at the time. Who else would there have been to bring that about at the time? And so we also understand, especially during the time of the Declaration of Independence, that these individuals were facing treason if the movement failed and or if they were caught afterwards. And if that movement failed, they would be taken back to Great Britain. They would be tried in a court there where there were no witnesses to testify in their behalf. And they would then undoubtedly have been found guilty of treason and they would have been punished. And the punishment for that was that they would be hung 
they would be until they were unconscious. Then they would be cut open, their insides would be taken out, they would be boiled in oil, and the oil would be poured on the ground. That was a very, very mm. severe punishment. That did not happen to any of those who drafted the Declaration of Independence, but it did happen to others in British history who, were, who suffered that same penalty. Mm. So we know the British meant it when they said that they would do that. But let's, let's take a moment now and talk about Samuel Adams, who began the movement to bring about the United States of America, to bring about the revolution against Great Britain in the northern colonies. He was from Boston, and he's such an interesting character. When I study the founders, Samuel Adams has to be one of my favorites. But there's not a lot of information written on Samuel Adams because he knew that what he was doing was treasonous, and he feared that he would uh, be the means for implicating and destroying his friends if the movement failed. And so he burned all of his correspondence. So mm. when you want to write about Samuel Adams, you don't have a whole lot of information to work from. Um, he was consummately a politician. He had tried his hand at business. His father had a, a brewery. The family was well-to-do. Um, he tried, uh, with his father's help, he tried becoming a, a merchant. He failed at that. He tried becoming a farmer. He failed at that. It wasn't uh, his calling. <laughs> it wasn't. He, he tried to run the family brewery when his father died. That went downhill. His father gave him $1,000. He loaned 500 of it to a friend who never paid it back. He just, when it came to supporting his family, this was not what, mm -hmm. what Samuel Adams did well. Um his first wife died after bearing him five children, three of whom died in, in early childhood. And he stayed single for several years and then married another woman who was, was never, they were never able to have children together, but she raised the two remaining children. And she was perfectly happy, even though Samuel was not bringing home enough money and they were struggling to pay the bills. She was actually doing needle, needlepoint and needlework and selling her goods in order to be able to buy food for the family. Because Samuel was out there talking to people about politics. He was actually known as Town Hall Sam among some of the people because he was at every town hall meeting, which is how you ran government back in Massachusetts in those days. And he he knew most of the the 15,000 people that lived in Boston. He knew them and he knew their politics. Uh, he's his big thing was that was the taxation. He could not deal with the fact that the colonies were being taxed by Great Britain. And so he was out there talking to people and he was writing articles in the newspaper and he was drafting little pamphlets, which is how you advertise your points of view in that in that day. Um, when he would see the people begin to settle in resignedly to the taxation, he would find a way to flare their interest back up. He just simply would not let this die. This was his mission. He was good at that. It was. <laughs> when we study American business today, we know that there are several different steps in the process of bringing about any business deal. There's the guy that starts it, and then there's the guy that takes over from there. And then finally, at the end, there's the guy that actually manages the process. Well, Samuel Adams was the guy that started it. And so he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. That was very important. Um, but after that, he didn't really get involved in national politics very much. He did not go to the Constitutional Convention. He had an idea that they were going to draft a strong federal government. He was not in favor of that. He was very much out of the statesman. He wanted Massachusetts to be able to stand firm and supreme. He wanted it to be only this very superficial uh, system of government over that. And so he refused to participate. And then he, once the Constitution was written, he fought that. 
because he didn't believe in it. When the Constitution was released, he told his friends, I read only the first three words, we the people, and I stopped there. He said, this is not a government of we the people. This is a government of we the states. That is what he wanted to do. And so he kind of was this beautiful, um, inspiring movement to get the process in motion. And then he stepped back when the movement didn't go the direction that he anticipated mm. that it should go. And um, he went on to become the governor of Massachusetts, but he, he never really assumed much of a political role after that. But we're so grateful to him. There's this beautiful bronze statue of him that stands outside Faneuil Hall in Boston that you can go take a look at. And, and he's just... Um, he, he he was a religious man, but not overtly religious. Mm-hmm. Um, his contribution came in helping the people see the need to fight off the British. He was the one who stepped in and said, if we submit to this taxation, how will we ever free ourselves from that? Once we allow the British to step in and do this, then what are we going to do from there? He was a soft-spoken man. He was uh, well liked by people. Um, he he did his temper didn't flare at all until you crossed him on one of these principles of liberty, and then this man could just fire at you, and make himself very well known. And so he he uh, was definitely one of the great delights of the Revolutionary War. And uh, many people say that without him, we would never have had. Uh, the revolution that brought about the United States of America. He, it began in, in 1774. He began the movement to talk about unifying the states and creating a strong federal government. We, we say that he originated that idea. Actually, Benjamin Franklin had come forward with that idea 20 years earlier in an idea given to him by the Native American Indians, the Iroquois tribes that were living in the area of New York. And so just fascinating the way the work that he did. It is fascinating. And what I hear from that is that each person has their gift. They have their calling, they have their mission, and it is just enough for them. Thank you, Sam Adams, for what you did to, to help spur this movement on. And I'm so excited to learn more about you through Pam. It's amazing. She doesn't have any notes, folks. She's got this all in her heart and in her mind. And she is sharing with us these beautiful stories from her research about the Founding Fathers. We'll be right back after this message. Oh, our Savior's on Mount Zion, marching to the beat. With fife and drum, this world or come, march to the mercy seat. In the air, your voices linger, the sound is bittersweet. The music I hear playing, the sound of marching feet. Men of God's battalion, Fought on that battlefield With shield of faith, with sword of truth Mustered courage, held virtue dear They're fighting for God's glory They fought in days of yore The scenes have changed, the cause the same Pray forevermore 
from sea to shining sea and beyond. You're listening to Joy Coaching America Worldwide with show host and Joy Coach, Karen Lynn Grant. Welcome back to Joy Coaching America. This is Karen Lynn Grant with a special interview for this month of Father's Day, honoring fathers, but specifically today, honoring four founding fathers. And Pam has just done a wonderful job of sharing her research, her study with Sam Adams and his contribution to making America great. And now we're going to move on to our next special guest, our next founding father that Pamela will be sharing. And one of the things I want to make sure that we all are looking for is what you share about their personalities. I love this because as we have done this with George Washington, Benjamin Franklin uh, in a previous show, talking about these founding fathers and their contributions, but how their personalities contributed to those big contributions they made to making America great. So teach us about Patrick Henry. Thank you. It'd be a privilege to teach you about Patrick Henry because he was the voice of America. And I should mention that I have a book called Promises of the Constitution that you can find reference to at promisesoftheconstitution.com. It's a book written in one and a half page segments to make it very easy to read. And I take many of these founding fathers and I do short segments on them. I've condensed the information about their lives to make it easy for you to understand. I would encourage you to go to promisesoftheconstitution.com and research those materials. I think you would enjoy that. Please also tell them the name of of the DVD that they can get where they can hear the stories of the children and the mothers okay. too. Yes. Uh, so I've also created several DVDs, one of which is called America's Founders. And I tell stories about um, known and unknown founding fathers. I, I tell about men and women, and I've even got some stories about children. And um, th- it's an important DVD because it, I, the stories are so interesting. Um, I've got a lot of really good visual aids there. And I tell stories, for instance, one is about a man named Sam Whittemore. You just won't have heard about him anyplace else. But if you want to hear a story of a man who set out to give his heart to the Revolutionary War effort, uh, Sam Whittemore is is definitely the individual that you would want to talk about. Beautiful. Uh, just so many stories. I tell some stories about the founding mothers on there as well. So interesting. Thing. Beautiful. And last month in May, we had a whole show on the founding mothers. So please go back. You can find that on the podcast. And we're so excited to just continue with Patrick Henry. So Patrick Henry was from the South. He was actually from Virginia. I have to tell you a little bit about his childhood in order for you to understand him as an individual. He was the son of a man who had a one of the, not one of the huge plantations in Virginia, but one of the relatively well-to-do ones. Um, and as a child, he had no promise at all. He was lanky. He was awkward. Uh, he was not a handsome man. He wanted to go hunting and fishing. He didn't want to do schoolwork. He didn't want to do anything like that. Just leave me alone. Let me go do the hunting and fishing. But somewhere along the way, this man came alive and he decided discovered the voice that he had. So he tried several occupations uh, right along the line with Samuel Adams that we just talked about, and, and none of them were successful. He decided then that he wanted to be an attorney. And so in six weeks, he studied the law and managed to pass the tests in order to qualify as he a was lawyer. <laughs> that was his calling. In the state of Massachusetts. So he, he tried his first case, and he was actually the attorney in what became a very famous case where they were defending or uh, opposing the fact that taxes had been drafted to pay the ministers. 
and um, he went to to begin his his uh, his presentation before the jury. He walked to the center of the room and he just stood there. He didn't say anything, put his finger up on his chin like this, and he just stood there. And he stood there for a minute and a half, saying nothing. And the courtroom became very nervous. His own father was the judge. And his father was stated that he thought, oh, no, my son is failing at yet another occupation. Mm. And so he was picking up his gavel to bang it down to bring an end to the process when Patrick Henry began to speak. And when he did, the words that came out of him were so powerful and so beautiful, they electrified the entire courtroom. And it was absolutely marvelous, the work that he did. And fame of him spread throughout the entire state of Virginia. Wonderful. He went on to become an attorney and tried over a thousand cases and was very well known. And most of the time he had this lackadaisical backwoods country way of speaking until he stood up in front of the legislature or until he wrote. And then this powerful eloquence came out of him that just brought the world alive. One of the individuals who heard him as a young man was Thomas Jefferson, who stood at the doorway listening when Patrick Henry made his famous speech, give me liberty or give me death. Mm. Jefferson stated that he was simply transfixed by this entire experience in listening to Patrick Henry. Individuals were just motivated to step in and act. Now, I should point out that that Patrick Henry's speech, this give me liberty, give me death speech, was not recorded until many years later. And so there's always the possibility that historians have enlarged on this a little bit. But in the reports that are given for those that heard that speech, one report says that when he got to the point, but as for this, give me liberty, and he took his fist and slammed it against his chest as though it was a dagger going into his heart, (laughs) and give me death, and fell to his knees. Now, I've only found one source that (laughs) relates that particular experience. But Patrick Henry was involved very much in the government of Virginia. Uh, Again, he was a statesman. He was like Samuel Adams. Uh, His interest and his attention were directed toward the state of Virginia. He went on to become the governor of Virginia uh, in the early stages of the Revolutionary War. According to the Constitution of Virginia, you could only serve for a year. You could only be elected for three years, and then you had to step back. And so when he stepped back, uh, Thomas Jefferson stepped in and became the president. That was not a particularly successful experience because Jefferson got to the end of his two terms of office. Uh, the British were just getting ready to descend on Richmond. Uh, Jefferson abandoned his post before Patrick Henry got there to take over. So that was not a good thing. But when it came time for the Constitutional Convention, Patrick Henry was very opposed to what he believed was going to happen. He was, again, concerned about keeping just a very minimal federal entity and allowing the states to have all of their power. And so he refused to participate in the Constitutional Convention, just as Samuel Adams had refused to participate. But when it came to the ratification process, now we're into something very different. And so... Patrick Henry went to the ratifying convention determined to defeat the ratification of the Constitution in the state of Virginia. And those throughout the country who were watching him stated they believed the greatest opponent to the ratification of the Constitution in the entirety of the 13 colonies 
had to be Patrick Henry. He was the voice that had to be overcome. So the convention to ratify the Constitution in Virginia was a very powerful one. It was very long. And when it came time for the vote, the Constitution was ratified. Patrick Henry had stated that he would support whatever the decision was. And so when the decision went against him, he he did that. In fact, he went outside uh, after the Constitution, after the ratification was announced. He went outside. There was some rioting going on out there. People were very involved in this process. He broke up the rioting. He told the people to go home, that the Constitution had been accepted. But he did not still support the Constitution. What he vowed within himself and to his cronies was that he would try to bring about the, he would try to lessen the effects of the Constitution and lessen that federal process that was going on in the Constitution by going into the first legislature. He was elected to the first legislature for the United States. And he tried there very hard for for some terms of for some terms of the legislature to weaken that process and um he was successful in doing some of that there were two movements that were revolving and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next the last half of the show but there were two movements that were going on at that time there was the movement for a strong federal government and there was a movement for strong states and patrick henry was definitely one who believed in the strong states he wanted virginia to um to be able to create its own laws and create its own world. Mm -hmm. He was ignoring what had happened under the Articles of Confederation because under the Articles, we had had very little federal government. We had not had the equivalent of a president. There was no one to help with that process. And we had to rectify that. That was one of the reasons we had to have a constitution. Patrick Henry didn't see that. It's amazing to hear the opposition in all things and to realize that each man brought their checks and balances, really, because what it, without those checks and balances, it really would have been something that could have slid by and, and not been a successful constitution. We're so grateful for your time here today, and thank you so much. We will be back after this station break with more from Pamela Romney Openshaw. Remember her book, Promises of the Constitution. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Joy Coaching America, raising the world's vibration to love, joy, and peace. One happy listener at a time. Well, welcome back to Joy Coaching America. We're having a wonderful time. I am loving hearing this information, the storages of knowledge that you're sharing with us today, Pamela. This is Pamela Romney Openshaw, who has written a book, Promises of the Constitution, who has homeschooling uh, educational materials. You can go to her 
website, promisesoftheconstitution.com. And please do, after you hear the storages of knowledge that she's sharing with us today, I can't wait for all of you to get the book that has all the little daily readings, the episodes that you can be learning and teaching your children, your grandchildren, even ourselves of this wonderful information. She's got DVDs with stories about children, mothers in the Revolutionary War, and much, much more. And now we turn the time back over to you, Pamela, to share with us about this third founding father and what contributions, his personality, what he brought to the table, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton is one of the great... uh, shall I say, the great greats among the writing of the Constitution of of the United States and the creation of the United States of America. He was born uh, in the West Indies, came to the United States as a young man, enrolled in college. Um, He was uh, an illegitimate child. His mother was dead. His father had deserted the family. But others of the community saw his great gifts and sent him to the United States to go to school. Um, So he made it through three years of college, and then the Revolutionary War broke out, and he dropped his last year of college uh, and stepped in and became part of the revolution, very much a believer in in, uh, freedom and in liberty. He had a beautiful ability to write. This man could uh, express himself so beautifully, and he began writing. He actually wrote some poetry that attracted people's attention, but he began speaking out in terms of liberty, and immediately attention gravitated to him. The Revolutionary War began. He wanted to be a battlefront commander, but uh, George Washington instead dubbed him to become part of his uh, cater of uh, individuals that that, uh, helped him with his letter writing and such as aides that gathered around him. George Washington had no children of his own. He fathered no children. And so he created, in effect, a military family that that generated attention and love and affection around him. And Alexander Hamilton became part of that. And he came to know George Washington so well that he could write for Washington as though it was Washington writing himself. And Washington would simply have to, uh, to sign whatever Hamilton had written. And it was uh, a piece of literature that could easily convey what it was he wanted conveyed. But Hamilton was never happy in this position. He still wanted to be out on the battlefront. So four years after he became part of this group of of AIDS, um, contention developed between Washington in one in one episode that became a bit explosive between Washington and Hamilton, and he then stepped away from the official family. Was later given uh, the opportunity to command in battle, and fought at the Battle of Yorktown, where he behaved with his care with his. Um, the recklessness that that came to be identified with Alexander Hamilton performed very bravely, um, and it just kind of demonstrated this this incident of what he did when he got into battle. Kind of demonstrated who he was. He was the kind of guy that he just he kind of got out there and he just kind of did what needed to be done. He didn't always think very carefully about hmm. what he was doing. Um, people either loved Alexander Hamilton or they hated him, and there was very few. Um, individuals who found a middle ground on that. So um, he ended up marrying a woman by the name of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Schuyler, um, the daughter of one of the noted politicians at the time, one of the generals of the Revolutionary War. Uh, They had a very happy marriage. She bore him eight children. Um, He 
when the Constitution was written, he was a part of the Constitutional Convention. He was one of three delegates from the state of New York. The other two were named Lansing and Yates, and they became disgusted with the process halfway through, abandoned the convention. And so Alexander Hamilton became the only representative from the state of New York that was attending the conference. So during the Constitutional Convention, you have different plans being proposed. You had uh, the Virginians came forward with um, a plan for... um, that eventually morphed into the Constitution. But the small states gathered together and brought forward their proposal. And then in the middle of this process, with no warning, Alexander Hamilton stepped forward and proposed his system of government, which was patterned very closely after the British system. Nobody liked it. Nobody voted for it. Mm. Um, He was very discouraged by that. And he drifted away from the Constitutional Convention, drifting back in through the last half of the process. And he ended up signing the Constitution. But he was very much an advocate of it, and he wanted to um, let the people know what had actually happened during the Constitutional Convention. And so as the the, uh, Constitution went forward into the ratification process, there were so many arguments that were being raised about it. People were not understanding why why the Constitution said what it did and why some of the proposals and the propositions were included in that document. So he enlisted James Madison and John Jay. Uh, to help him. And they wrote what are known as the Federalist Papers, which have been declared worldwide as some of the best statements of wise political government that could ever be drafted. And Alexander Hamilton was responsible for close to two thirds of those writings. And so he, he made a wonderful contribution to that. So when the um, Constitution was ratified and George Washington became the president, Alexander Hamilton was dubbed to be the first secretary of the Treasury. And he had his own view of what he believed needed to take place. He had seen the debt that the states had accumulated. They had $65 million worth of debt that they had to, be, that they had to pay back, and, they, and no one knew how they were going to pay that back. And so Hamilton realized that in order for the United States to thrive, they would have to step into the European community. And in order to do that, they were going to have to have a banking system. And so he proposed as the Secretary of the Treasury and one of the three secretaries in Washington's original cabinet, he proposed a national bank. That bank absolutely infuriated those who believed in power to the states rather than power to the federal government. They knew, the opponents knew that if Alexander Hamilton put that bank into process, that it would give them, that it would automatically create a strong federal government. And that once the bank was imposed, then no one would ever get rid of it. And so it was fought hard and long, but eventually the bank was uh, accepted by the legislature and we ended up with the national banking system. And under that system, it would be possible to pay back the debts. That's why George Washington supported that system. He wanted to see that debt paid back. So under that banking system, one-fifth of the shares in that banking system would be owned by the federal government, and the other four-fifths would be sold to uh, citizens of the United States. When that uh, situation was proposed to the people and the date came when those shares were to become available, 
Hamilton believed that the people of America would come forward and, and buy one or two shares at a time and that this banking system would become something that would be a unifying thing for the country to his dismay. And he later admitted that he had been mistaken about what was to happen here. Um, big financiers stepped in and bought almost all of that stock. And mm. the common people of America who would have liked to have been part of that process were inched out of the process. And so um, we'll talk in our next and last segment of this program about James Madison, who was one of those who substantially opposed Alexander Hamilton. But Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State under George Washington, and he was infuriated by the system with the national banking, with the national banking uh, enterprise that was being proposed. And so Hamilton would have liked to have been president of the United States. Um, that's just something that people who are in positions of authority yearn for. And it was something that he definitely wanted, but he destroyed his own chances in that. Uh, during the period of time when his wife was pregnant with, I believe it was their sixth child, he got himself involved in an extramarital affair with a woman named Mariah. <sighs> lost her last name at this moment, but she was a young woman who, who um, coordinated with her husband to blackmail hmm. um, Hamilton. And therefore, when that became public, it destroyed any possibility. And he died as a victim of a duel with Aaron Burr. And um, that ended his legacy. He, wow. would have, he was a marvelous man. He would have accomplished oh. a great deal more had he lived. With just a character flaw. Right. Oh, that is a tragic ending to all of his great and prolific talents and abilities. Oh, this is an amazing journey that we're on, and I'm just spellbound through it all. I'm not making many comments. I am listening. Thank you, and we'll be right back with more. Welcome back to Joy Coaching America, raising the world's vibration to love, joy, and peace, one happy listener at a time. We are back with Joy Coaching America. Pamela Romney Openshaw is our special guest today, and I am so excited. I am learning so much. You know, they just left so much out of my my personal history books. I don't know how the rest of you are feeling as you listen to the details. And as I'm sitting here listening to you, Pam, it's amazing because last time I interviewed you, I got to see it in vivid color, the the things that you are sharing. You are such a great storyteller. You are such a great, uh, you have so much expression when you tell these stories and it really brings these people to life, back to life. So I'm excited now as we move on to our fourth founding father in our final segment for today. Thank you. We're going to talk about James Madison today, but before we do, let's talk about the development of political parties in America, because James Madison was one of the primary players in that process. 
So if we talk about George Washington uh, in his farewell address, which, by the way, was not an address per se, because he never delivered it, delivered it verbally. It was a printed address, but he addressed the development of political parties. He didn't call them political parties. He called them factions in government. That's what they that was the terminology they used back then. But he was warning about this animosity that develops in in uh in the whole political process. And and he was stating that this undermines the process of government. And he had had a really good tutorial in this because in his cabinet, um, which began, of course, at the very beginning of his presidency, he had three secretaries. He had a secretary of war, which was Henry Knox. And I so wish we had time to talk about Henry Knox and the cannon from Fort Ticonderoga. Oh, I would love to tell you that story, but there's not time to do it in this broadcast. And then he had Thomas Jefferson, who was the secretary of state. And he had Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of the Treasury. Now, Jefferson and Hamilton were diabolically opposed to each other in what they wanted the Constitution to produce. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted a mainly agricultural society where they did very little trading with other nations, where they remained basically independent of other nations. Alexander Hamilton wanted the, the federal government to step into being a part of the world at the time. He knew that a national banking system would be necessary for that. He knew that we were going to need a big navy. He knew that we would have to do a lot of interacting with countries in Europe and the like. And Hamilton was appalled at what uh, Hamilton wanted to propose. And Hamilton felt that Thomas Jefferson was being very provincial and very unrealistic in what needed to go forward in the world. And so it was the conflict between the two that created political parties. But we're going to discuss it more in the context of James Madison, who was the supporting cast for Thomas Jefferson. The two men, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison together, were the force that created the first political party in America. And they did that in opposition to what Alexander Hamilton was trying to bring about, which the national banking system that we discussed in our last segment of this program. So to tell you a little bit about James Madison himself, um, he was from Virginia. He came from a plantation. He didn't marry until he was 42 which meant that when he was uh, 39 and 40, he was still the son living at home with his mom and dad. And uh, he was very shy and, well, shy, quiet. Quiet and soft-spoken would be a better way of describing him. Um, he didn't usually speak very much until he was spoken to. He was a tiny little man. Um, I've read reports of him that say that he was anywhere from slightly over five feet to the fact that he might have been as tall as five foot six. Um, the average man in America at the time was five foot eight. So um, the designation of him as a short man must also refer to the fact that he was very thin. He was a very slight man. We're talking about someone that is physically very small and his voice was small to go with it. Mm. When he spoke, people could barely hear what he was saying. In the Constitutional Convention, where he was of great importance, when he would speak, most people couldn't understand <laughs> what he was saying because they couldn't hear what he was saying. And so um, his great gift that he offered to the nation came through the Constitutional Convention. It was James Madison who began to study what was important in a nation, 
what mattered? What had the masters said? He was the one who went back and studied. Well, many of the founders had done this, not all of them, but many had gone back and studied the old masters and what they felt was important in government. Um, And Madison had simply uh, consumed that information and brought it into his soul and into his spirit. I was mentioning uh, before this broadcast to Karen that uh, James Madison was very involved in the development of our perception on religion. Do you remember my mentioning that? Absolutely. So um, religion had been considered one of those things that you just, you kind of didn't mess with. It was acknowledged, but it wasn't wasn't really a prevalent part of the American process until James Madison came along. And he was the one who defined it as an inalienable right. So our whole approach as a nation to uh, validating the rights of every individual to worship as he or she believes came from James Madison. This is fascinating. I, I didn't know that. And I think that this is a fascinating point that we all need to take note of, that it was James Madison who gave us the inalienable right to worship as we please. Or stated it as such. I mean, God had given us that right, but it was James Madison that made us aware of that entire process. If he had not done that, would that have been left out of the Constitution? It might very well have been. And and so James Madison himself was not a devoutly religious individual. That wasn't part of who and what he was. Uh, but he believed in religion. Uh, virtually all of the founders believed in religion. Uh, and in the right of individuals to worship. But he was the one who realized that the government couldn't interfere with that religion. Mm. Many of the states at the time had official religions connected to their states, and um, that suppressed the right of other religions to come in and function. And it was Madison who stepped forward and said, uh, this is not appropriate and we need to bring an end to that. Actually, if we take a look at the signers of the Constitution, Almost all of them were religious individuals, uh, stated religious preferences. There were a couple of them who were known as deists, meaning the best way I know of to explain a deist is that he is an individual who believes that God created the world and then walked off and left it. Um, An example of that would be the mother who gives birth to a child, and then after the child is born, she said, I hope you farewell, dear, and departs. So, Mm. you, you know, that's not a system that's going to work very well. Um, and so, but, but the government went forward with this uh, body of religious belief that went with it, and that was fostered really by James Madison more than anyone else. So in the Constitutional Convention, it was Madison who kept notes. There was a secretary for the Constitutional Convention. His notes were uh, paltry and insufficient. But James Madison took a seat on the very first day at the first table right in the front of the conference, and he wrote prolifically notes all the way through this Constitutional Convention. Every single day he was there, every hour of the Constitutional Convention, and he would go back to his room at the inn at night, and he would compose his notes and put them into a more legible form. He did not, however, release those notes for publication. He authorized them to be released after his death. He said he did not want to be arguing with people or having people confront him on some of the things that he had hmm. written. So he simply stated they were not to be published until after he was 
after he was dead and gone. And so, were those notes published? They have been published now. Yeah. And we know exactly what was said at those times. And those who've written about the Constitution since then can go back into those notes and consult and find out what was said at the time. Well, this was his gift. That was his gift. So so we look at the different gifts brought about by these different founders. And we talked about Samuel Adams and his was the tenacity to stick to it, to see that, that change was made. We know that Patrick Henry was the voice. He was the one who inflamed others. We know that Alexander Hamilton was the one who carried through to make sure that the material assets of the nation were preserved. And we see that the gift that James Madison gave was this gift to have studied what what government was, and then to be certain that that was brought about through the Constitution. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was in Europe at the time, serving as the ambassador for the colonies to to uh, France, and he sent trunks full of books to James Madison, who consumed them all. Madison was an attorney. Um, so after the the Declaration of Independence was written uh, and the Revolutionary War was held, and by the way, James Madison did not fight in the Revolutionary War, he was a hypochondriac. By uh, his own admission, he was always worried about his health. His digestion was poor. He just he, physically, he just didn't have it. He didn't pull it together well. Um, he went back, he stepped out of the national politics for a while, went back to Virginia, and that's when he married, in one of the great marriages of the, of American history, he married Dolly Madison. We talked about her last month in our radio program about the founding mothers and how she helped establish the political uh, aspect of the wives of the presidents of the United States. Uh, and so she aided him a great deal. As he stepped forward then to become president of the United States, our fourth president, um, when you look for the contributions that he made during that period of time, he was not one who stepped forward and made a dynamic impact on the world, nothing like George Washington. But mm-hmm. then how did anyone ever equal George Washington? Mm-hmm. But but he was he was quiet. He he administered the government well. There was nothing spectacular. But war, a second war with Great Britain, descended on his presidency in the War of 1812. Um, he he was, of course, uh, responsible for the ultimate conduct of that war, but he he just never really got it together. He never really had a plan for the government. Uh, we managed to end the war, um, but not through any great gifts uh, of any kind. Uh, we love the man. We love what he gave us through the Constitution. We love that dedication that brought about this gift that he gave us. And what I feel love and appreciation and gratitude to him for is for ensuring that we have our inalienable inalienable rights to our religious preferences. And I think that that was a huge contribution, probably before his presidency. But how grateful we are for each of these men, for all of their contributions. They are our founding fathers. And this was a pleasure to interview you. We'll be back with more in another series, another part, when we come back. And thank you very much for your listening today. This is Carolyn Grant with Joy Coaching America and Pamela Romney Openshaw.